Good evening. Uh, welcome to the National Academy Museum and School. I'm Marshall Price, the Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art here. And um, I want to just welcome you to uh, another evening of the review panel. Um, before we get started and I introduce the moderator of the review panel, I would just like to remind everybody that we have a John Cage exhibition going on right now. Um, John Cage, The Site of Silence, which is on the second floor of the museum. And we have an extensive program uh, of uh, public events associated with the show. So as you can see, uh, it goes on and on and on. Um, and the next one will be tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock um, with Dorothea Rockburn, who will be performing uh, John Cage's Steps, uh, composition for a painting. So we hope to see you then. And on your way out of the museum, please uh, pick one of these up uh, near the front desk, and it will give you the whole program. So um, with that being said, I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, David Cohen. Uh, David is the editor and publisher of artcritical.com and uh, the moderator of the review panel, a joint venture between Art Critical and the National Academy. So please welcome David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall, and to all the staff here at the National Academy, and to Graham White, our able recording engineer. The review panel is recorded for posterity, uh, so we uh, need to keep our effing and blinding to a minimum uh, panel. Um, and uh, the uh, uh, podcasts are available at artcritical.com um, with an archive stretching back um, to the almost decade of this uh, institution within the institution. So um, we've had a strict rule that we've adhered to uh, religiously from day one of the review panel only to review uh, exhibitions of a recent body of work by a single living artist. And uh, you may have noticed we're breaking the rules tonight. A slight departure from tradition. Well, that's what rules are there for, as the artists in these shows seem to be perhaps aware or convinced. Um, so, as you have seen from the program, we are tackling uh, three sprawling-ish historical survey, thematic, interpretation, historical, reconstruction, exhibitions, and discussing the phenomenon of that kind of exhibition, what it does for us, whether we, it satisfies us, how much we need them, um, how much we love them, or otherwise, and doing the job that the review panel does of sinking our teeth into the specific shows, the artists, how do these reputations stand up, are these the right works to put together? Are we learning what we want to learn? Are we learning what we don't want to learn, etc.? So, who is new to the review panel? Who's joining us for the first time? Right, excellent. Enough people to warrant explaining the rules, which are very simple. In fact, we have another newcomer. Um, so the rules are that we uh, have a little... They're not rules. Why am I calling them rules? We have, I forgot my mouth guard. This is going to be a problem. We have, uh, we have PowerPoint presentations. Hi, Jay. We like to keep it informal-ish. <laughs> but hi, Jay. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's the other thing. It would be a great opportunity to silence your cell phones if you would care to. Uh, uh, on the subject of technology, 
Uh, we have some PowerPoint presentations for those of you, I won't say us, who didn't get to see uh, one or any of the exhibitions. And the exhibitions under review are regarding Warhol at the Met, uh, the Six Years exhibition, uh, reconstructing, uh, not reconstructing, but constructing the art documented and um, uh, um, uh, in archived in Lucy Lepard's seminal Six Years uh, publication. Um, and uh, finally, an exhibition at Hunter College, just down the avenue here, of um, um, the, uh, the, the Times Square show revisited. Um, so what we're going to do, the format for the evening, because it is a departure from the norm, is we're going to look at um, uh, each show and have a bit of a discussion about that show, and then um, probably en passant, but certainly um, uh, when we've dealt with our shows, um, um, discuss some of the museological, methodological, critical um, issues that arise from um, these kinds of shows and what, what we are, we the art world are making now of the art of the last uh, 40 to 50 years um, what kind of job is being done for the postmodern era of constructing and, and designating a canon um, but first, it's my great pleasure to introduce um, our panelists. And as I mentioned, uh, we have uh, Jane Harris on her maiden voyage as a review panel participant. Jane Harris is a, a critic who writes uh, for a broad spectrum of publications, has included Art in America and um, at Time Out New York, among other publications. She um, has also written essays in uh, books such as the Vitamin P and Vitamin D um, titles in, in the Fiden, uh, from Fiden Press, and um, also, I believe, uh, an essay in a monograph on Anthony Gosilia, who was uh, an artist reviewed here on the panel some years ago, not, alas, very favorably. And um, <laughs> Jane is finalizing um, uh, her work on uh, a book that I for one, I'm very eager to see, as I've been uh, toying with a similar subject myself, called, uh, called After the Copy in Modern Art. And the, the role of the copy. The role of a copy in modern art. Who's that to be published by? Uh, Yet to be determined. Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> a very distinguished publishing house. I have a lot of business with them myself. So, um, uh, Jane Harris, and welcoming back to, uh, to repeat offenders, uh, multiple repeat offenders, uh, Stella and stalwart review panelists, uh, Christian Vivro's phone, who is art critic of the Village Voice, and Blake Gopnik, who holds the same title at the Daily Beast and Newsweek. And Newsweek. Right, ladies and gentlemen, your panel, please welcome them. Great, well, let's dim the lights a little and have a look at some Warhol and company. Great. Thank you. We can have the lights back and we'll um, have these cows keeping us company as we um, ruminate on um, regarding Warhol. Uh, Jane, it's, it's, uh, although it is not a Warhol retrospective, it, it almost offers 
Um, it offers a pretty uh, uh, good selection of, of this artist's work, doesn't it? It's, um, um, it's a way of, another way of, is it another way of looking at Warhol to think of him, to think of his impact? Or, um, I mean, he is very much the star of this exhibition. Well, yeah, clearly, based on the title. Um, I think that some other critics have pointed this out, and I know, Blake, you wrote about this show, right? Yeah. That, you know, a lot of the work is painting, and there wasn't very much film, and some of, some of the sort of non-object-based work that Warhol did do. Um, my sort of feelings, I mean, most people, most critics panned this show. I think that Peter Sheldahl was one of the few who actually liked it. Um, I had mixed feelings about it. Initially, my issues were with the categories, which I thought um, were sort of obvious and sort of conflating too many themes in each one. Do you want to spell them out for our audience, just because for people who haven't seen the show? Can uh, we you want me to, them? to share what they were? Yeah, maybe yeah, between the three of us, we can remember somewhere. them all. Something about the categories. Okay. okay, so the first was daily news from banality to disaster, and that was, I believe, three galleries. And then there was another gallery, uh, fourth gallery attached to that, which was daily news, and the emphasis was on death. Then there was portraiture, celebrity, and power, queer studies, shifting identities, consuming images, appropriation, seriality, and abstraction which I think uh, Roberta Smith said was you know, just a way of saying repetition, which I thought was kind of um, funny. And then no boundaries, business, collaborations, and spectacle. Um, so I don't know whether or not you want me to just sort of say what I thought about the show, but first I thought after you know, sort of looking at the categories and thinking that you know, some of the work in the first gallery of the Daily News it was relatively interesting, but then the second main gallery with that was mostly work that visually looked like pop art. And some of the inclusions in that particular gallery and even that section didn't seem to fit. And a lot of critics have you know, sort of complained about that, that you know, why were the selections Sorry made? Sorry to interrupt, but we're the four critics in town who matter, so let's not worry about the others. Let's really, don't you think? We can, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to... Uh, uh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> just derailed my, my uh, thought here. Okay, sorry. It's all right. Um, well, the net cat's pretty wide, which is, I think, where you were going. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, I mean, yeah, so I think that, yes, I agree with the fact that there were works included that, you know, you wondered why or they seemed too literal and in some cases misleading, having the Hans Hock, Helmsboro uh, work in that gallery, I, I took my students from SVA and they just passed right by it, not realizing it was a critique of, you know, Jesse Helms and the support of Marlboro, of various art institutions and this kind of nefarious kind of nexus of art and commerce and corporate support of the arts at the time. It just looked like a giant cigarette box. And of course, what what they leave out altogether is that there's no work of art that's less Warholian than Hans Hacke's exactly. cigarette box. Exactly. That here's this thing that has an explicit political message to it, which is just the kind of thing that Warhol never, ever did. Exactly. That, I thought, was the most egregious example, and there were lots of them throughout the whole show. Or, of, or, or Curran's paintings of two lesbians kissing. I mean, yeah. you know, it's painting, qua painting, and that's exactly the opposite of what Warhol was about. Yeah, it seemed to me um, that throughout it was as though there was this... Section? It was, yeah. I actually had to back up and look at the stupid guides to sort of figure out why, you know, the whys and wherefores of the inclusion, because uh, clearly there were a number of things that just didn't make sense, and that was... 
again, as Blake was pointing out, one of the more egregious ones. So, you know, I actually sort of stopped and went all the way back and looked at the goddamn thing and said, oh, Jesus. You know, or even Kuhn's ushering in banality. I mean, it seemed to be there just because it had banality in the title. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think... Although, would any of these these artists have been licensed to do what they do without the imprimatur of... You know, it struck me that you could sort of do this show and put Rauschenberg's name on it. It would probably right. be about half the list, mm-hmm. um, That's a good and point. maybe another another you know another fifty artists or whatever the the, the final number was, and, um, and vice he, versa. You could take any you could take almost any artist as loosely as and this, include as, and include them in, and it would still be relevant yes, to Warhol. Yeah, there seems to be true. no. It seems to. I think the the reverse would have been more interesting. Is what I thought is you know who influenced Warhol would have been much more interesting to me as a show. I, I, I think like you're right. But I was looking, uh, to, to just go on your point, at somebody who had clearly been as big an influence as Warhol. And the person that comes clear to me is, is Rauschenberg. Um, you know, in part because, because the combines, obviously, in the art and life business. Um, but also because he probably gets the silk trade before he does. Yeah. But I also um, think that Rauschenberg makes sense for that kind of show, whereas I don't think Warhol does. That is, Rauschenberg can be metified successfully. Rauschenberg's a maker of discrete objects, mostly. I think he makes sense in terms of as the latest old master, in a sense. Whereas I think doing that to Warhol really travesties what Warhol's about, turning him into a connoisseurial figure for the Met to admire, to look at in the most traditional notions of influence, to think of a Warholian school. All of those things seem to do, to do an injustice to what really matters in Warhol, but that's to real radicalism. Because I didn't read it that way. The way I read it was, was the Met essentially sort of flexing its muscle and showing that it could do a big contemporary show. The, a big enough contemporary show to fill the, uh, the Marcel Brewer building. Mm-hmm. On the you other know, hand, it's a big... Yeah. That's, that's what it seemed like to me, this particular show. Absolutely. Uh-huh. But yeah. it seems to me that they're flexing their muscles in exactly the way they would flex their muscles for Rembrandt yeah. and his followers, okay. right? That it's assimilating him to the most traditional model of what it is to show art, yes, to, no, but then to make are, art. Then there's their list of sort of... Then there are the bullet points that are meant for Ma and Pa Kansas that Jane just sort of like went through. And I think that's not usual Met practice. Hmm. They generally don't tend to sort of... And I think in fairness they were actually trying to advance a more sophisticated notion than uh, the simplistic influence, the causal... You think they were? This is the big one, and these are the the little ones, the followers. You think they were? I think they, at least in their labeling, were paying uh, lip service to... Uh, to ideas that influence is 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 bigger and uh, richer than, than I think that. this. I, I honestly think this was their pop version of a, 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 a normal Met show. That's what I mean. That's exactly right. Well, I, I also think, think though the queer different. studies section was you know something to commend yeah, the I, Met for, even yeah. though there were many artists in that that you know were not gay, and not that that should necessarily be the parameters, but it disturbed me a little bit to see, you know, Richard Avedon and um, Richard Prince and David Hockney, and there's so many other artists that could have been included in that section. Or so, not. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> or just a show about queer arts. Exactly. I mean, that might have been more interesting. More interesting. Although, that's the, the, the one Huck- section that I, that I wrote about that I thought worked that somehow got at some of the, how complicated Warhol is, that there's a real social dynamic there, that weird shit is happening. Only, in, but only, you if you, only if you accept the premise for the show as a series of collaborations. And that's one of the things that I thought was a bit sort of like, 
underhanded about the show is that on the one hand, you're coming to see Warhol. But on the other hand, you're coming to see supposedly these quote unquote collaborations and the Hockney piece in particular, I was sort of struck by because, you know, Hockney and Warhol are kind of an Edison and Marconi moment. It's not Warhol influencing Hockney, you know, which is true. And so you're looking at this and you're going, man, someone's selling me a bit of a bill of goods. It's an impertinence to figures like Richter. It would have been an impertinence if this is a causal influence show. It would have been a, a grave impertinence to Richter or... Uh, Alex Katz to somehow say, oh, uh, these are the pupils and this is their master. It's partly framed that way, though. No, it is. I mean, they, it's been read that way, whether it's, it's framed that way, way or not. Everyone has been reading yes. it that way. Well, I think if you, it's, you read it that way if you don't read, because, I mean, the, the labeling is actually trying to say, read. it's trying to tell you uh, <laughs> not to look at it that way. But, yes, you're right. I mean, if, you, if you've uh, gone to a big show called Regarding Warhol and it's got lots of Warhol in it, that uh, everyone else is going to look like... Um, an extra in his movie to some extent, unless the work stands up and um, does its own thing. And but even if the work itself. stands up, it's a biopic. You just you put your finger on it. Right. It's a, bi- a biopic. So it's, an eccentric, is it, is it, is it, so it's an eccentric way of offering um, another Warhol retrospective. Well, I, I don't know that I'd agree with that. I don't know that I would call it eccentric either. Um, I think it was you know, taking really obvious categories that we just went through, that you can relate many, many artists, and we've all agreed that just about anybody could be included in that show. Um, It was how, you know, I think it was conceived, and it was conceived to be a blockbuster, which it was. I think, I'm trying to remember what, um, what is her name? Uh, Anyway, a famous actress, um, one of the Spice Girls, what is her name? Oh, Victoria. Victoria Beckham, Beckham. she mm-hmm. went and she tweeted, and apparently the Met retweeted to their, you know, 950,000 fans. So, I mean, that's That sounds exactly like the only Warholian wanted. moment in the entire show. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that was, actually sounds like getting at something. You know, my that, complaint about the show it is It was that it, noted you know, as such by, I, I forget what critic who noted exactly that. Uh, oh, you know, damn. So, Not me, unfortunately. Sorry, someone got there first. But no, it's true. I mean, would Warhol have loved it? Probably. Would he have loved the show? Definitely. But mm. does it, as a kind of academic or, you know, important historical show, really have any import? I think it's mixed. I think for people who are not as um, knowledgeable or are historically inclined, got a lot out of it. Although some of my students even were capable of critiquing mm. it and, and finding too much of the work visually literal, you know, sort of mm. presenting work that looks like pop art. You know, I keep but, looking at the subtext, or in this case, even overtext, though. And I don't think it's any accident that Warhol gets this kind of a blockbuster show at the Met. It's their first outing yeah. with contemporary art, right? At a time when, when the collusion between money and art is at its historical peak, bar none. I think the Here's Mets the had, the the Mets had other art, excursions into art, contemporary and, art. And this, and, is, and this is what we've got. The Geldsala show. Uh, uh, I mean, there have been other excursions into yeah. contemporary art. No, but, I didn't but, mean necessarily the show. I meant the ah, moment. The mo- yeah, huh, yeah. Right. At this point yeah. in time, yeah. I Although thought it would have been interesting to have had the categories be based on, on Warhol quotes. You know, I, I want to be a machine or good yeah, business no, is the best art. And, and that was sort of along or, the lines of what, Blake, you were saying when, in, in your review that ultimately the kind of essence of Warhol and his, his kind of ambivalent attitudes, I think those 
influences on contemporary artists or those that came after Warhol would have been a much more interesting show. Or, or, or Jane, maybe other people's quotes about Warhol, like Richard's. Andy's the only artist I know that's for everything and against everything at the same time, or not for anything, that's what it was. Um, oh, it's for everything and nothing at the same time, that's what it was. Um, um, um is what I have to say about it. Uh, a redeeming feature? I must say, I've been teaching art since 1960 uh, again, and... No, the, you didn't start teaching art in 1960, I know, did you? What? I've been teaching art since 1960, where? Big quotes. Art since 1960. <laughs> the diacriticals are critical here. You, uh, I've been teaching quotes. Got it. Art from 1960. Art since 1960, end quote. Not since 1960. Yes. I was born in 1975. A lot of face work. Yeah. Like the Botox. Well, it's just a godsend. Actually, these... The, the, these, these, the next show we're going to look at as well. It, it's, it's, um, it really saved me hours of PowerPoint because I just said you have to go and see those shows, and and there one has um, quite a good chunk, um, good in in quantity rather than quality terms perhaps, but of of the quote unquote canon that that one one needs to teach. Now, yeah. one feels obligated to teach. Um, so. Uh, but that's setting the bar so low. That is, that's saying there's not, no utter crap on the wall of the museum, so it's an adequate show, right? There's nothing so embarrassing that you don't even think your students should go see it. Is that, is, is that as high as we're going to set the bar? Well, I mean, no, if it's true that it doesn't give a correct picture of Warhol, in fact, they shouldn't go see it, that they're going to get, they're going to get a non-Warhol show thinking they've seen a Warhol show. Well, what I, my feeling is they're going to go and see a lot of pictures, and they're going to see a lot of objects. I, I, when they come back to the classroom, we do the, we do the unpacking and the critical constructing to, to try to form our notion of, uh, of a canon. But um, um, a, you know, somebody sort of emptying the filing cabinet of uh, recent art onto the walls is, is a service to the, to the, to the um, teacher. Um, uh, we, one doesn't... One doesn't protect one's students by saying, don't see that show because it has a critical well, problem. Well, no, but you make choices. You know, mm-hmm. There's only so many shows you can take your kids to, and you, know, you choose ones that you think are going to be interesting. I'd like to get back to something you just said and something Christian said. You said there are a lot of good pictures on the wall, and that's one of my complaints about this show and about all three shows, in fact, is that they're very much about taking a radicalized practice and turning it into a bunch of objects, in this case, almost only paintings. And that, I think, you could argue is the case in all of these shows. And it comes back to what Christian said. I feel the hand of the market, the, the hidden hand of the market in all these shows, that there's an assimilation to a traditional notion of, of precious objects in all three of these shows. It's subtler in some than in others, but the notion that there can be an anti-museological practice in these artists Well, you would um, say that of, this, of, of the Lucy Lepard show? I would, absolutely. You're taking a lot of objects that were meant to, to oppose the notion of museums, of objects stuck in a museum, and what do you do? You take them, you t- treat them as objects, and you stick them in a museum. That seems that underneath there is percolating a very traditional notion of what art's all about. And I think that that's happening in the entire society, and it's partly because of the influence of the market. Even among those of us who aren't interested in the market, who reject the market, I think that we've been touched by the notion that art is essentially a series of objects created over history. Is it perhaps that the museum is predicated on principles that it can't escape, regardless of the market, 
of venerating and preserving the, the individual, the specific object. The move towards the canon is totally predicated on that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can a canon only be a canon of objects then? I mean, is that... I, I don't see why, why not. Well, you can have a I canon mean, of ideas. I mean, well, that's, that's what canons while, are. While I, while I agree with, with the uh, fundamentals of your point, I, I like Jane, I'll be interested to see how you, 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 uh, you prove your thesis with the Who's loose departure. We're, we're running out of time, yeah, unfortunately. Because <laughs> um, I, I didn't Lippard. think there were so many objects. Actually, let's, let's, move on, let's move on to Lepard, because I, I'm, I'm rather curious by Blake's response to that. But, um, let's, uh, but in general, I totally agree with, the, light with, tap, with the point that this, that this particular moment, again, this collusion between the market and art, and, particularly, and specifically objects, obviously, certain kinds of objects especially, undergirds all the shows. In fact, undergirds everything that's happening right this minute. Because there, in fact, is the title of the show. I and mean, here the show, uh, I mean, regarding Warhol as a nebulous title, but um, uh, materializing six years is very specific and literal and... And problematic for art that's supposed to be material. Now. Probably not actually, funnily enough, ultimately correct. Did you notice how they had to fake that piece? That they had to glue it together so it would stand as <coughs> yeah, it would roll so up? Yeah, so it wouldn't fall over. Which piece was that? The Sarah? Sarah, but... Uh, oh. Yes, that's it. That's our images. And for... Uh, this is... Uh, this really, for me, is an intriguing show because uh, here you have a book which, um, more than any other, trailblazed the, the notion... Um, well gave us the, 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 the word, the concept dematerialization, and critically, with some critical brilliance, um, identified um, an anti-reified um, uh, uh, tendency in the art of, of, of her time. Um, she was fascinated by the extent to which artists were um, mailing in their instructions um, or um, the, the the, the, the way in which um, um, sorry can we can we get the bit either shut the door or, or um, yeah um, so here here is a, a book whose which is the artifact is so redolent of, of its moment uh, do we all know the the book by Lucy Lepard the six years um, I, we saw, saw the cover at the beginning it's a period that's so um, uh, redolent of a kind of spirit and a, and a moment um, uh, the, the grainy black and whiteness, the, um, the typography, the facsimiles of um, instructions and letters and documents, um, uh, the, the, um, the whole kind of bureaucratic aesthetic that went with the nonetheless very sort of uh, nonetheless uh, humorous and sometimes poetic um, aesthetics of, of uh, pioneer conceptual art. So here we then have an exhibition that tries to gather the, the things um, or, or some things that relate to the um, anti-thingness that's being um, is the subject of what is essentially um, a mammoth and sprawling bibliography, um, an, an, an archive. Um, uh, so it's, it's making a museum out of what is an archive. So um, uh, it, it, it has a conundrum, and then the conundrum for me is that you go through that big show, and Dorothea Rockburn's piece 
which has poured paraffin on paper, is A, the nearest thing to a painting, and B, the most colorful, and C, um, the most visceral object in the show. You can actually still smell it uh, decades later. Um, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy seems to be the theme of the book and uh, the show. That's funny. That's a really interesting take. I see where it comes from, but in a sense, they seem to be such anti-bureaucratic artists in so many ways. Exactly. Right? Yes. A... They, they, their pose is, uh, you know, we're rebels with a cause. Um, uh, we, are, uh, we are the counterculture. We're, we're, um, we're deconstructed. They don't use the word yet, but they're sort of deconstructing ideas of creativity. Um, they are... Um, uh, but, but so much of it has to do with instructions and uh, references and just index cards with, type, with typewritten words on them. Um, so much uh, so serialism and the grid are so uh, ubiquitous in, in, in the art that's documented in Le Part that here are these, these, these sort of counterculture long-haired guys who are kind of doing a sort of bureaucracy. And women. Uh, and women. Well, guys, sort of, guys in the... Uh, but it's, it's sort of a brainy part of the counterculture. It's a neo-Marxist part of the counterculture. And if there's a bureaucracy to it, it basically sort of kicks in later once they basically join the academy. Sort of. I mean, it's institutional critique in, in the early sort of period. And Lucy Lepard calls conceptual art the adolescence for kind of later identity politics or political art that's more overt that develops in the late 70s and 80s. I do not think it's bureaucratic at all outside of the fact that it's in a museum, which naturally makes it bureaucratic. So it seems kind of redundant to me. No, it's bureaucratic before it got to the museum. Yeah, it when has you open qualities the book. of bureaucratic. You know, it, it's instruction sets. It tells you what to do. It says, here are the rules. But it, it was all them. very it's... provisional, and it, it was all meant to be very anti-commercial. And while anti-commercial doesn't necessarily mean anti-bureaucratic, I do, I do think you're, for me, it seems a kind of reach. I, I think bureaucracy is the wrong word, too. I think sociology is the right term. Yeah. You know, there's a, that's, that's art essentially largely as sociological instruction. You know, and not um, all of it was instruction. I mean, the, you know, the Rosario group was, you know, doing things like locking people. But the Rosario group is an outlier. That, I would say that one thing. And that the, the one thing that, that generally gets me about, particularly about American conceptualism, and I think there is such a thing as opposed to, say, for example, global conceptualism. Absolutely. And there was this fairly good show, which, by the way, I didn't like at the time, but that come around at the Queens Museum some long time ago called Global Conceptualism, which ran the gamut of conceptualisms. And again, talking about Edison Marconi moments, the conceptual thing happened in lots of places, globally, um, at a time before, way before the internet. Um, and people in, I don't know, Argentina, specifically, yeah. and, and in and Eastern Uruguay, Europe, and Uruguay, had to deal with different kinds of stresses, and their work became significantly political in a way that the American variant did not. Germany as well, boys. Exactly. Right? Um, and so there is lip service paid to that. I don't want to, in the show, um, Lepard got significantly more involved with the Rosario because she actually went down there with the New York Wines, and she, she did shows. But I still find Lepard's version, even Lepard's version, but certainly the, the central tradition, Central American tradition, to be politics about art, or politics sure. about the art world, rather than art about politics. And I think there's a real distinction to be drawn there. And I find that distinction exists in this show. 
Well, and you know, I don't know if everybody in the audience saw the show, but it, the, it follows the book itself and the chronology of the book, and it goes year by year covering the six years, and that's basically the only thing that identifies where you are in relationship to you know, different work in the show, or the little numbers of the years up on the wall, which a design world friend of mine you know, who was with me when I saw the show kind of thought was problematic because it's so information-dense and text-based, the show. Even though I know, David, you think there, you know, perhaps that's a problem because it's not, you know, you, you mentioned the one work that's, Dorothy, Dorothea's work that's, you know, visceral. It, conceptual art is generally not visceral, it can be. But, you know, so it follows that, and that's its kind of um, reason for, for existing, is to reproduce this book in an exhibition format. And in a way, inverting that, because the book itself was uh, a kind of compilation of things that were not in any way commented on or analyzed by Lepage, who wanted the work to speak for itself. And, and I think since so much of it is text-based, whether that's because it's ephemera or the actual work itself was you know, round text, um, makes sense. You know, if there had been more wall text explaining the textual pieces, it's, it's just kind of overwhelming. But there is, in fact, a book of the book, as well, a book exactly. of the show of the book. Exactly. So I do wonder why the show exists. I mean, that's a real question for me, and it's a question I, bring, I think of a lot of times when I go see a very heavily curated yeah. show like mm -hmm. that, you often think, and this might be, even be true of the, of the Warhol show, if these are the points you want to make, then you can make them in a book better than you can make them on the wall. And that certainly seemed to be the case. But that unfortunately is true of almost every show you yeah. see in a historical society uh, or in a, in a library. That, um, um, I mean, unless, but people love those shows, including me, because you do get uh, some visceral sense of something that is um, uh, basically textual. Uh, but there, there's, so much, there's so much of a feeling for the time and the period when you actually see... Um, Objects. Though I've, but, I've but his point, but, but Blake's point is that these are wall texts about texts. That would be the difference. Uh, well, as that, opposed to wall yeah. texts about objects. In fact, wall texts about texts that are deliberately trying not to be objects. That is, wall texts not just about texts, but about texts that reject the whole notion of art being constituted by as objects. So that seems to make it a yes, little strange. Yes, it's reifying the dematerialized, which is an inherent um, oxymoron. I guess, yes. I, guess, I guess the counter question is, can they make it into the museum in terms of, can the museum fulfill its canonizing function if, if they don't bring it in as an object? Well, and here's another question. Even though do we want them toast. to, right? We want these works to be in the canon, or I do at least, right? Because yeah. we care about them. But can they be in the canon and not be built around the same, the same criteria that traditionally canonic works are. So we're stuck, I mean, it's, we're sort of putting the museum in I think we're being a little heavy-handed here, because look. Also, getting back no, to just the idea not. of why the show, which you yes, know, that's Blake a, that's raised. That's the good question. I mean, it was, I response? think, ultimately, you know, it was an homage to Lucy Lepard, and exactly. there was at some point at which they said it was an example of a feminist curatorial methodology. It is in the Sackler wing, after all. Exactly. Or, 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 even, or even more to the point, seeing as the four of us are sitting here, of a critic actually having a significant influence upon art production. <laughs> As she did. To be perfectly frank. Absolutely, and yeah. she was an activist, and obviously her curatorial projects are included, and that's where it departs a little bit from the book is inserting that aspect of her career and its development and the kinds of things that she did outside of curating all the number shows, you know, doing things with the art, uh, the Art Workers Coalition, and other kind of activist things that I think are really important and meaningful. Yeah, I've got to answer Blake here and say that the, my, my co-panelists here are 
on record are much more enthusiastic about conceptual art than I am, but I think it's a brilliant show, even though it does not give me visual, visually that much pleasure, because um, it's, it's, an, it's an imaginative engagement with a canonical text, and uh, it really does uh, homage where homage, some homage is due to a very, very remarkable uh, person, uh, Lepard. And um, it's also a very thought-provoking show to see work which no viewer is going to go and see that show and not realize that, okay, uh, there's a lot of ideas, a lot of texts, a lot of instructions, a lot of uh, 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 references, um, a lot of some postcards. Um, it's, uh, but this, this was the moment. This is, this is what it's describing. I mean, it, it, has to, it, it can't get away from what it's describing. And if what it's describing is considered to varying degrees by everybody to be of, of importance, well, that's the way it has to be dealt with. Well, it's also interesting to consider in terms of the, um, the little bit of sort of uh, similar art production now, me meaning uh, um, the, the, there's a little bit of political art sort of coming, bubbling up out of the surface, particularly connected to Occupy and what have you. So it's interesting to think of it in that context, right? At least it is for me. No, and I well, think it has been bubbling yeah. up throughout. I mean, this stuff oh. is at the root of our... It's never ended, right? There's never yeah, been yeah, a moment yeah, no, when it No, the Times Square show is... A, I think it can be seen right. as an extension of it. Of and I don't think it started and here either. I mean, it's not... No, it's it started... Dada and much earlier. Exactly. And Lucy Lepard cites Dada as the most sort of meaningful and interesting historical period. Or her first experience. For her, yeah. To her, yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you mention historical shows because I've made the argument that... It's a mistake to think that history museums and art museums are the same institutions at all. They have the same mm -hmm. word attached to them, but they're fundamentally different kinds of things. And it mm -hmm. may be that the Loose of the Part show is actually a historical museum show that happens to be in an art museum. That's exactly right. That's what I would think. It's presenting art. I don't agree at all. Um, but it's not presenting art. See, there's, it seems to me that art museums, one function they could have is a kind of library function. That is, where, it, where they present works of art, and you then do with them what you need to. If it's a Cezanne show, then you're free to do whatever you want with Cezanne show. And in a sense, there's no, there's no gap between the object being presented and the, and the ways in which you can conceive of them. The conundrum here is, 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 is not in the, the museology, it's in the work itself. Because um, if you go to the Morgan Library, on one floor you can see something about Dickens, and on another floor you can see um, French master drawings of uh, three centuries. Uh, obviously, one is a history thing and the other is an art thing. Um, the fact that this looks more like a, a history thing than an art thing, even though actually it is the art, um, comes down to the art. I think it's down to the work, too. I'm with David here. I mean, I, I, I wonder what it would what an ideal show of this kind of work would look like to you. Well, would it be all the performances happening? Is that some, what it would be? Something like that. That is, I think you're wrong. I don't think we're seeing the art in this show. I see mm. relatively little evidence that what we're seeing is, I mean, you know, is the Lee Lozano grass piece where she smokes as much weed as she can possibly smoke for however long that is. Are we seeing that piece? It's not clear to me that we are. You know what? Neither you know. did anybody it's else. Based, well, right. But it, it's based on the book, right? right? You can't, you know, exactly. you're, you're circling around the fact that that was but, the concept and focus of the exhibition. But, 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 but the book sure. itself was... And the book itself presented the archival information. Right, that's right. And it, the book, in fact, is not a show. So if, you know... But, well, it was thought of at, by some the, as... as as a show object. in mm. a printed form, and that mm. idea continues in the exhibition through other examples of curatorial projects that don't exist in physical space mm. in this same anti-institutional stance that is consistent throughout 
this period. Could but we not because, actually think of the, but, the, the, the exhibition as being the book um, on walls and floor. So, so it's, in fact, is a read. It, it is. The book. That's why it's is called materializing, because it's inverting, dematerializing. But you guys are describing just about all the conceptual work done between 62 and 80 mm. that's reliant on text and documentation and photographic documentation, whether it's in Lepard's book or in any other book, or in sure. fact, in no book at all. Um, this is an inherent problem with showing that work. I think, like showing being the operative problem, show, the problematic work, right? I mean, that's. It, but it is if, because these documents and these texts were made, and they were made not just to be reproduced between hardbound covers; they were also made to be actually sort of shown in gallery context, minimally. That's, that's if not an museum, and obviously they, 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 they did not very want minimally. That. I, mean, I think that. that's counter to the majority of. The I mean, world. let's remember there are artists who reject. Being in shows like this, Ian but Wilson won't be in a show. Oh, yeah, right but not at the all. majority. Most of the artists in that show are alive, and they didn't. Re- and are making good money off of these objects. I mean, Vito Acconci's studio was funded by him selling these. Well, objects. of course, they ended. Yeah, that's the sad part: and is that to, a lot of the this work did, did end up getting what was considered to be ephemeral and not art in, in the sense that it was just documentation. Does now sell for great amounts of does. money, but that doesn't undermine the show itself, as far as I'm concerned. That's no, not the money the doesn't, but the object, the, the, the turning things that are supposed to be non-object-based into objects seems to me obviously problematic. And I think in some way we all agree. We all say these aren't the... But it's, so there are objects and there are objects. There are, um, there are, there are artifacts yeah, just, and then there are... We're going, we're going I mean, what are we going to do? Have Vito Kanchi um, do his following piece? I mean, it can't be done. Fair. It's done. It's, it's right. historical. It's a finished work. But can we just, before we move on to uh, Times Square... And it costs uh, money, damn it. Yeah. We've gone from the uh, 50s to the 60s, and now we're bouncing to 1980. But let's uh, uh, just uh, put uh, Blake on the spot here. You, you made a point uh, that... Um, uh, putting myself on the spot, because I can't remember what your point was, because it got lost a bit. I think I've repeated it three You've repeated times, it three times? <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll, we'll yeah. excuse you from repeating it a fourth time. Then let's, um, let's have a look at the Times Square show. Right, oh, okay. I thought it was okay. Uh, Yeah, we could turn it off. Um, Yeah, I'm surprised it did that, but uh, I guess I didn't put it on pause at the last slide. Okay, perhaps we just um, yes, please, yes. Just put sleep on the uh, put it to sleep by the apple, and um, uh, just a little further to the left is is an apple uh, sign. Yeah, thank you. And just go to sleep. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so the Hunter College has given us a little, has had a little festival of uh, uh, Redux uh, shows in its uh, big Times Square uh, gallery, which is, I think, the last show in that rather hot space. Um, hot in temperature, I mean, not in... Uh, um, Trendiness. What, what did you but mean? It, I mean, it's, it's physically very hot. I think that's why it's closing because you, you know one wants to lend their pictures to a hot gallery. Um, they did an exhibition. Uh, uh, they did a, a revisiting of the exhibition uh, conceptual abstraction, which is actually a show I'd love to have been able to talk about, but alas, it closed some weeks ago. Um, and they also have this historical show uh, just down the road. They're, uh, a main campus um, of, the, of the Times Square show uh, revisited. Um, what do we make of this? This is a, this is a, 
this is the most of the, of the three shows we're looking at, the the most concerned with and faithful to uh, an actual show. I mean, in, in much the way that the Lipard is to an actual book. Um, well, um, does it have any of the vibe, any of the energy, or is it just the the wrong time, the wrong place to to think about uh, an art exhibition that took place in a much seedier Times Square um, in a in a ex massage parlor. Let's just let's just spell out for the audience what we're, what we're talking about. There's a show, 1980. A bunch of artists get together pretty informally, uh, take over a space in Times Square that was a former massage parlor, big space, four floors. I four think. Four floors and a basement. And a basement. Um, and they and all their friends. There's almost no, no. There's almost nothing that prevents someone from showing in the show. There are no wall ta- texts, no wall labels, no names for artists. It's a real DIY community kind of effort. Um, between artists mostly in Tribeca and the, and the East Village, I think. So real kind of alternative scene. It was more or less organized by Colab and the artists that were associated with Colab. I think there were 100-plus artists, and it's true. It was very open-ended because that was the spirit of Colab, although it was also uh, co-organized with Fashion Moda, which was a South Bronx collective, and I was a little disappointed that they did not focus much on that contribution in the wall text or in the catalog. Um, I also, you know, you think it, it's Times Square, so you think it would have been in their Times Square galleries. Um, 12,000 square feet would have given it a lot more of the original energy, you know, of the show. It's not a massage parlor in the CD, you know, 1980 era of Times Square. But the show was actually curated by uh, a, a master's. It was came out of a thesis show, uh, project, basically. So that's interesting to think about to me, was that here was this artist, you know, young student um, in the Times Square studios, which are going to close. You know, urban revitalization is going on now in that area. I think that's why Hunter's closing those galleries. Um, And in 1980, that revitalization was going on in the 70s in, you know, an urban revitalization in many cities. Sort of the beginning of that in New York. Yeah, so I I think that was, you know, it sort of explains to me maybe the genesis of the show, and I really appreciate that. You know, a student went to the trouble of interviewing a lot of these now-forgotten artists um, and put together the show. That said, I think the show was... uh, a little disorganized. You know, I could. I don't know about you guys, but I could make neither a heads nor a tail of the um, checklist. It was very confusing. Video. But the original, wasn't that, maybe that's an homage to the uh, to no. the spirit of the original, which but, but, an accidental homage, if nothing else. I think the you know videos just weren't up and running. Uh, I don't think the checklist. I mean, you know, whatever. It, it was probably a small budget thing. And any kind of critique of the of the DIY model of art making, this, the romantic mm. notion of a bunch of artists saying, you know, let's put on a show, still mm. seems incredible incredibly popular, and no one seems to talk about the possible deprofessionalization of art making. The Bruce right? Art High, the, the Bruce great, High Art Foundation right? is the living embodiment of That's that. That's right, unchanged from earlier incarnations. Now, I lived for 10 years in Washington, D.C., where it's almost a disease, the notion that mm. so long as a bunch of people get together and put the art on the walls, no matter how bad the art is, that's a good thing. Right, that there's this, or how good the art is, but how badly put together the show is. Sure. That's, right, it's, there's almost never a problem that the art's really great and the show stinks. Um, yes, I wish. <laughs> yes. Um, well, possibly, but I think it always needed to be questioned and has never been questioned enough. That is, it could have been not problematic even in 1980. I mean, but, among other things, how many 
important works of art actually come out of a show like this. There were some, and some good artists. No, some serious artists, Tom Watson yeah. and, uh, and Charlie Ahern, Charlie Wild Style, and the whole contribution. Jenny Holzer, right. Jenny Holzer, Kiki Smith, there's many. In terms of the percentages, you'd probably get a as good a percentage as you get out of any, any big, big sort of group But the show. thing is, the but, thing is, if you look at, the, say, the Viennese secession, um, those, those were artists who were uh, boycotting the academy, coming out of the academy, yeah. doing things in a new way, okay? They didn't do it in a DIY. They got the most beautiful building in Vienna, almost, uh, to, to, to house the secession. And they the, set a new yeah. standard for how to do shows. So it's a new thing, isn't it, this romantic idea that if your artists are not a museum, you do it in a crappy I, way I and it's more Dada authentic. I think Dada and Fluxus, you know, are the precursors to but, the do-it-yourself. But, but, but they did it better. They did it better. The Salon de Refuse, if you really want to go That's there. And they weren't anywhere no, near as slick as the people who were no, the, the Salon. Or Manet being the first to establish something outside of the Salon system. So, I mean, I, I, do-it-yourself well, has connotations now that I think come from this period, 1980, but I, I think it can be extended and understood. But you do know. you don't think there's anything problematic? I mean, I, I originally was trained in the Renaissance, where there was no, there was, it would have been ridiculous to imagine a non-professionalized artist, right? It would have been ridiculous to imagine an artist who wasn't entirely serious, who didn't have uh, great training, all sorts of things. And I, this isn't an argument for skill. But mm. it just seems to me that not questioning the notion that that's not a model we can have anymore, not questioning the romantic model seems a problem for it me. It seems to me. And there's a lot of damage in smaller cities like Washington. Well, we can't have no. it now, but if you look at the context then, we might have it if there's a real bust. Mm -hmm. And I hate to go back to the market, but this is exactly the kind of context in which they found themselves. I mean, right. 1980 is a situation in which the whole world is getting, New York's almost been, Drop Dead was when, 76, 78, Drop Dead in New York? Uh, Daryl Ford, yeah. um, uh, the Vietnam War just uh, uh, ended. Um, there isn't a lot of the, the. There is virtually no place for these young artists to go and show. Never mind have a career. Um, and New York, and, and they didn't pit. want to be part of and, the gallery system. I mean, they they were like many of the artists, you know, that precede them in the in the. They, Lupart, Lupart they came show. around to not wanting to be in. I mean, once they got enough doors Still. shut But, but in I think face. Blake's point is yeah. not that there are but, artists who take their but, fate into their own hands and organize their own show. It's, me, it's, that, it's that they do it in a shoddy but, way. But, but let me finish the point. The point being that when, when they do sort of get up uh, uh, on their DIY horse, as it were, and put this show together, again, the context responds in the following way. There's a piece written by Jeffrey Deitch in Art in America mm -hmm. that is very important. Uh, there's a piece written in the village, there's two pieces written in the village voice, mm -hmm. which at the time was a, a far more important uh, yeah. uh, publication than it is now, unfortunately for me. Um, uh, but, it, it, you know, it was, it was the big event of the year. And in fact, it's been so big that we've been hearing about it, all of us, since <laughs> Jeffrey Deitch called it basis. courageous. Yes, he said, he said that Times Square is, the, is, New York's that was is, 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 is New York's behavioral sink. So and and Lucy Lepard had many issues with it because she thought that it just kind of... Uh, ripped off her people. No. I think she thought that it was playing into the gentrification that was going on because developers mm. were happy to have the artists come in and you know, take over the space. And it is an inevitable critique. problem with yeah. that sort of stance, absolutely. 
And then I'm not arguing either with the fact that, you know, sometimes the do-it-yourself aesthetic produces, you know, shitty work. That it's no a form one of primitivism, I think, is, is Blake's point. But it's a spirit and an attitude that has a force and that I think has been very important to, you know, contemporary art, if we think of contemporary art from and, the and I, and I guess what I'm saying ultimately the, the DIY thing translated from that moment in that context to one that's entirely flush in which, again, everything's for sale. And nobody had for, money then. But there you go. Is a different animal. So, yeah, the de-skilled movement, and there is such a thing. I'm sure you guys have probably heard of it. It's, it's not a movement per se, but you hear this a lot. You know, the movement towards de-skilling art. In fact, the last Whitney Biennial was yeah. chock full Although, of Although, that, that's a slightly different set of issues because the, the reactionaries can also talk about de-skilling in a negative the, way. The, right. Yes and no. The attitude, I think, towards a lot, from a lot of those young artists, and certainly from their galleries, is, is that that work is DIY. And it's much of the work, I think, is problematic. And, well, and Christy uh, Rupp most of it is problematic. said that she, she actually so acknowledged that it was, you know, an, that this whole kind of punk attitude was this combination of self-indulgence and insurgence. But do I so, think, you know, I mean, I don't think there was a complete, you know, lack of awareness that, that some aspects of that period in the do, DIY attitude, if you want to sort of confine it to that, was a little self-serving, navel-gazing kind of work, and that's problematic, right? But I still think it's not a deprofessionalizing I mean, it's funny you should word the, use the word punk aesthetic, which is one I've used in talking about it. And I suddenly thought, well, wait, actual punk rock was way more interesting than, than the DIY aesthetic of the, of the Times Square show. But you really don't like it. What? That, I, you, don't like, you don't like that show? You don't like the history punk of it? You it punk came out I'm of the DIY aesthetic. You didn't, you didn't need important. to know how to play an instrument. Anybody could play. That was, you know, the point. Fluxus was, you know, the real... I, I wish Fluxus had been sort of talked about more as a really important historical influence in Warhol, as well as um, this whole kind of anti-materialist, you know, anti-institution work um, that we're talking about and looking at in these exhibitions. I guess there's a difference that Fluxus doesn't strike me as very romantic. It has a romantic quality. It certainly is bohemian in a sense. But totally it has, romantic. It has a core of genuine difficulty and complexity it seems to me. It's not just the gesture and I'm not convinced that this version of DIY and again it comes partly from my experience of been, having been in a number of small centers where the only model for uh, art making is in fact basically exactly the model in this show. So there's been a pernicious influence of that model it seems to me and it gets a lot of people it lets a lot of people get away with making really terrible art and if you complain about it then you're the man, and then you're, you're, you know, you're fighting what artists really should be doing. That is, this is the model for a lot of people of what art, artists should be doing. They should be making weird, funky stuff of old stockings that they found and putting them in, a, in an ugly... Well, the show, was, space, meant, the show you know? was meant to comment on the, what was going on you know, economically at the time, and I think the parameters were the artist needed to discuss sex, money, and urban decay. So... Again, there, there was, you know, some kind of focus to the show. It wasn't just, you know, people did go in and do whatever they wanted to do, you know. 
But um, so there was, you know, aspects of that. But I think that just heightens the sense of unexpected and, you know, the energy that you get. I mean, ultimately, it, it is different if it happens in New York in 1980 as yeah, opposed course. to Ottawa in 2009. It's just going to yeah. be. I was actually thinking about Ottawa specifically. Where, there you go. <laughs> Windsor, Ontario is where I saw a painful example of it. The worst do-it-yourself. But, but name, name, name any town in North America with more than 100,000 people and you'll, you'll get. No, they have their version of the let's put on a show folks phenomenon, you know. Um, well, sometimes actually Documenta doesn't look that different, so... Um. <laughs> don't know where to go with that one. Okay. Um, but I'm really glad this show existed. I think this is incredibly important to examine the 1980, this moment. Yeah, I, mean, I, I wish they would have taken be... more time with it personally, and I obviously wish it would have taken place in the Times Square galleries. Would have so been... That's not so close to Times Square. It's a good distance Well, it's 40... 42nd Street. 42nd and 11. It's close enough. You know, 41st and 11, yeah. And yes. the original was, what, 41st and 7th, and I seven. think, so... Yes, it would have had a, a but, but this was an attempt, actually, once you're in that room, uh, down there at Hunter, you do, um, you, you know, the wallpaper, uh, there's, a, there's a, re, a regarding Warhol moment, the, the, the dollar bill wallpaper. Um, uh, there is also, I think, quite a lot of, probably quite a lot of uh, quite meticulous and sort of philological research into how the original had been installed and, and the curators have made put in energy to, to reconstitute that in, the in this were good. space. There was good stuff in the vitrines. Yeah. I liked the souvenir shop. There were some really great multiples that were included in that. Unfortunately not for sale. Yeah, I know. Um, I noticed there's, there's no price on anything. Now, you know, you're complaining about the market and now you're complaining because... No, I'm just... <laughs> but multiples, multiples... There's no market there. I'd love to get one of Christy Rupp's rat t-shirts. I'm sure that, you know, you can get them at Printed Matter, I think. So, you know, I mean... Yes. But if, I mean, Hunter can't sell art, I'm sure. No, I guess, again, yes. I want us to address the issue of whether this isn't a travesty of the radical, radical feeling of the 1980 show, that is putting it into the Hunter College Gallery at Lexington and 68, is automatically travestying the work, making it impossible to actually experience the work in anything like a way that makes sense of the work. Well, it but it's in fact, archival. it's a history museum. It it's another archival. history museum show. No, no more than the show. Pergamon Altar in Berlin. I mean, it's, that's the conundrum of a museum anywhere. Sure. Yes. Yes. So, um, b before we bring in our our, our audience, who must be bursting with comments and questions and queries and uh, protests, um, um, and, uh, let's try to let's try to. We've, we've looked at some detail at, at the the shows in question, although interestingly, we haven't homed in on specific objects that we felt we needed and wanted to talk about, which is interesting in itself. But the, the nature of the beast, I suspect. Um, um, we've already actually begin to began to throw up some of the basic problematics of. Uh, canon formation through reconstituted shows. Um, but um, museums, curators, uh, what can and should they be doing to, um, to, to revise uh, and, and remind and formulate um, a canon? Uh, and do we need a canon? Um, what, 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 do we, what do we feel, um, as very general remarks, on the basis of the three shows we've been looking at? Um, uh, what, what, would, what, would the cur what would the critics, what would the panelists like to see happening in, in museums? I think I would have liked to have seen that Times Square show in a museum. 
you know. I mean, I think it's great. I wasn't aware of the fact that it was a student who'd done the, the, uh, the curating. And yeah, I, and I think it's it was, admirable. It was a Though I had exactly the same problems that you did. Yeah. I was going around with the checklist. Top, so bottom, top, bottom. I know. Uh, south. So the, the, the curator was Carly Wurzelbach. Well, it was also Shauna Cooper. Uh, her associate, yes. No, yes. but in any event, you know, an admirable job because it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yes. When you know that, it, it sort of mitigates the fact that it's a little bit messy. And, you know, some of the excerpts there in this catalog, there are statements from different artists that she interviewed. Some of them happen to be put on the wall. You don't know why. It's, it's a little bit random. Um, but to answer your question, if there wasn't a canon, what would artists have to react against? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I love the idea of constantly expanding and challenging the canon, but um, you need a canon to do that. Exactly. I, I don't think it's going to go away. It's anyway. impossible. It's sort of impossible to imagine not having a canon at all. What would that mean? That you'd have an infinite interest in an infinite number of works? There'll always be a, a limited number of works to which you are paying attention. I'm not sure. I don't know how you do away with. Uh, I guess everyone could have their own canon, and you'd have no commonality mm -hmm. of interest. But that seems unlikely. Every mm -hmm. show would be a Times Square show. <laughs> That's a terrifying thought. Um, so you really, you really just didn't like the Times Square show at all? No, no, no. I'm, oh. I'm just no. I, what do you, which uh, you mean the original one or the revisited? Either. Um, I think no. I think the revisited was an important historical uh, exhibition that that addressed something that I happen to think is problematic. But I that see. doesn't mean that it shouldn't right. exist you know, it, by it, any means. It, it obviously would have been nice if it had equal footing with the other two shows, meaning that it that it. Had, that it had been actually sort of folded into the a, a museum canon, as it was. It was. But uh, do you think the? I mean, we've, we we agree that there are significant and interesting artists who did some very early work in the Times Square show. But do you think it could sustain the kind, the kind of museum attention of, of uh, a couple of rooms of regarding I, Warhol? I think. I do. I do. I do as well. I mean, you could have done some real recreation. Absolutely. Then. You could have been more ambitious about. Although, on the other hand... More artists could have been included. You know, I think the problem was there just wasn't the money to really do a proper... It may be that a lot of the material's just gone, too. I've got a feeling that there's just not that much left of the actual stuff in the show. But, you know, a lot of those people are alive. Exactly. I mean, it's a bump sure it's a budget thing. I can't think it is just a budget thing. Or, or rather, let's, let's be a little I Marxist about it. Let's be Marxist exactly. about it. Why isn't there a budget for it? I mean, that's... It's Hunter College, it's Hunter College. as Christian just said. I mean, I don't okay, think they so have the money. Okay, why so why doesn't the Met want to do Times Square show and leave Warhol to Hunter College? Well, this College? probably wouldn't what have happened think? if it hadn't been a student working on a thesis, and I think probably inspired by working in the Times Square galleries, or sorry, studios, mm -hmm. and knowing they're going to close, and deciding she wanted to interview some of these early artists, and then suddenly deciding an exhibition would be a good idea and getting some support from the school to do it, and probably the support was very limited financially. Yes, uh, the, the, so me the mechanics I, are, I'm not to patronize you in any way, but fairly obvious, but the point is this. I mean, I don't think that um, there are... There are uh, the answer to your question is because the Met has a different agenda, David. I mean, the Met, come on. I mean, so, it, the, Whitney, the Whitney the would probably have done this show if it had been presented to them and, and presented mm. in a, a much more comprehensive, well-organized way. In fact, Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's true that a show actually we could also have thrown into the mix if we wanted to send our audience and ourselves to another show was the, the Around and About the Bowery show at the uh, New Museum, right. which right. is actually art of a similar vintage yes. to, to some mm -hmm. of these people. 
um, and that's, that's... I think that's a good analog. That's okay. Let's now perhaps um, ask, let's get our roving mic, and now's the, now's the time when, to, to address uh, any of the three shows we've been talking about, or the meta issues of um, canonizing that the, these shows... Uh... <laughs> Everyone's leaving. Bye! <laughs> <laughs> Right, yes. Uh. Well, if art is not a series of objects made over history or a collusion of art and the market, then what is it? Excellent. Well, in between 1966 and 1972, it was a bunch of people trying to make, not make objects and collude with the market. So. It was about the real world, about you know, intersecting with the everyday or the notion of the everyday. You know, it was about a kind of anti-object or discrete object practice. Yeah, and more recently, it's been about events, things that are not even on paper, you know, um, and that managed to be sold anyway. Yeah. Well, and there's an um, argument to be made that, in fact, for, you know, long before this period in the 16th century, 15th century, whatever you want to say, it wasn't about objects freestanding to be appreciated in a museum setting, that the objects were completely folded into social practices of one kind or another, so that I think there are lots of models for what... I think the answer comes from our, uh, one of our artists. Art is a guy's name, isn't it? <laughs> At the back. Hi. Um, I actually worked on the Lepard show, so I have some thoughts. I, I think in some way there's also a romanticization of the lack of objects during that period. So these artists colluded in their own terms with uh, the idea of, of dance, of dancing that dance, right? So all of this material exists because they saved it and they used it and they displayed it quite bureaucratically and actually in an aesthetic that's quite similar to the show as it exists. If you look at the installations from January 1 through 31, for example, you have Adrian Piper as a secretary yeah. lording over this office space that has pieces of paper and documentations and a couple of books and a stain on the floor. And it's very, you know, it is, it's not a gallery, but it's a gallery-type space in which you come in and have a phenomenological experience that's also intellectual, that also takes you through text pieces, etc. And so I think it's interesting because there is a romanticization of that period, that it was so radical, but they were immediately trying to figure out how to get back into the market, Seth Siegelob's uh, um, uh, the contracts and these kinds of other kinds of distribution and other ways of imagining, but still with a complete eye to art history and uh, and a certain legitimation that you know. I mean, I, I think I love the radicalization and the utopian desire that a lot of the art comes from, but at the same time, I don't think they completely broke as much as they wanted to or thought they were. Um, if you look back on it, and that's where you know the show can stay quite close to the, the intentions, or the way the work was originally displayed, for example, without um, moving that far away. Um, but what I was struck by, and I haven't had a chance to see the 80s show, is that that seems to me the, the installation shots you showed quite far from the aesthetic of DIY and, um, and the energy of the, the Times Square show, as I understand it from my own research, and so that seems really like a moment where that, um, the division between being moved into an institution and what that would look like or what, how you would transpose that kind of energy of everybody's invited, everybody can do whatever they want, and bringing forward sex money and you know, 
all of that. So I'm perhaps, curious sort of what... Perhaps the irony is that if the if Hunter had a bigger budget, they could have done a better job of making it look DIY. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, you know, I think it's worth pointing out that, uh, I mean, just as you said, that basically what, what a lot of the earlier conceptualists basically sort of plotted out was an anti-aesthetic. Right. Well, and it's an anti-aesthetic that's actually sort of worked its way around to becoming quite aesthetic. I think it was quite aesthetic you know? from the start. There's a was, look. Yes. There was always a look well, to that's what, I, that's what I mean. Yeah. It was yes. a position within the field of aesthetics. Exactly. And jo Joseph Kosuth spent a lot of time yeah. and energy getting the right type font for right. his anti-aesthetic statement. We, we had to order a specific color gray from his studio to make oh, that right, piece. Right. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You were talking about, do you mind taking the microphone and telling, I, apparently an argument I made was specious and I'm just interested in, honestly, genuinely interested about why 16th century art, I was arguing that 16th century art, in fact, isn't part of a series of objects necessarily. Yeah, but you, you were talking about them being embedded in a social in practice, a, which, right. which is true, but it was a religious practice. Mm -hmm. And so we are still orphans of that. Uh, actually that connection between art and religion. It's been two centuries now that art has severed its ties with religion and when we speak of the autonomy of art, we should never forget that it began with the autonomy from religion. Mm -hmm. And now the market, uh, you know, for, for utopian Marxist thinkers, um, utopia or uh, politics has taken the place of religion. That was Benjamin, Walter Benjamin's mm -hmm. position, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and now the market has taken over everything, mm -hmm. indeed. Now, I don't know. Now, regarding the market, I have very, myself, very f mixed feelings about it, uh, to say the least. But I agree with David that we should not systematically glue together the word pleasure and the word markets, because that's not what it's all about. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, I have many, many artist friends, and I wish them to be able to live from their work. So how could you live from your work if there is not a market? Mm -hmm. uh, what we should say, be, be saying, I think, more forci forcibly today is about the perversion of the market. Of and mm -hmm. that, is, that the market is attempting to set the canon, and that that canon is wrong. That the market I mean, gets it wrong. I didn't see any of the shows that you were talking about, but I'm going to see a couple of them tomorrow, but I did tour uh, Chelsea this afternoon, and it was absolutely appalling uh, <laughs> to, see, to see such very, very good artists, and in one case I would even say a great artist, I'm talking about Ed Rache, falling off the cliff, and it's not the fiscal cliff, yeah. uh, like that with his show at Gagosan, which is so saddening. So saddening, like, like good old Greenberg used to say, an artist goes over. Well, he went over with that show. And the Charles Ray show is of the same, cut from the same cloth. I, more empty space to make the show look, you know, the, the art look more impressive, mm. but there's not much substance. And the Glenn Ligon show, market, another possibly. very good artist, but you put 15 neon pieces by Glenn Ligon and not, nothing else, and it becomes pretty objects, totally meaningless. And who is behind that? Who is manipulating? I mean, those obviously we have generations of art dealers who do not have the education that Leo Castelli had or Eliana Zonabend, or those, those uh, dealers who were there when the conceptual artists were around. 
Well, I think if, if we, well, if we, if we're, if all of us here wind up maybe with the exception of David, are banging on about the market, it's precisely because of that. Because I think we wish to make a significant distinction between what the market does constructively and the way in which the market is perverting uh, the process these days. Well, if you, if when you have a something resembling a genuinely free market, then you have, then you you can get, I believe, an invisible hand. Because if, when you if you go around Chelsea, okay, you got you got the some of the you got you got the big players uh, doing what they're doing, but there are, and that's why I feel. Chelsea is just such a precious uh, resource and it's so tragic. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons we have done historic shows uh, this evening is because so many of the shows we were wanting to include in the regular way um, were postponed or cancelled or washed out, literally. Um, but I've always maintained that, the, that collectively, the, the Chelsea galleries or galleries wherever they are, collectively, are an incomparable museum of contemporary art. And that, the, that, that if you put them all together and then compare them to what the contemporary galleries are at MoMA or the Guggenheim or the Whitney, the, free, the, the invisible hand of the market is a much more judicious curator than the curators. That you, that you go around those galleries and you pick what you want, and that is a, a better cross-section of living art. You're saying dealers are better curators? I don't, I don't, I agree, with I don't agree with that at all. I'm not saying yeah. dealers are. I'm saying that the They're the ones that are putting today. the art in the work? gallery. It's, it's the accumulation. If you, had, if you had six dealers, it would be a nightmare. But the fact that you have 350 uh, means that somehow between them, and you can walk into every one of them for free, which you can't unless you're a, a, a critic or a, or, or a student at, at MoMA or... Uh, the Met. I think it's just an amazing and incredible resource and I have much better exposure to living art in Chelsea galleries than I most often do in the leading museums. Then we should all be grateful for it, but I wouldn't be looking at the, for the invisible hand of the market to be looking for the hairy hand of the market. Exactly. At this point, <laughs> exactly. Uh, Where are we now? Any questions on other topics? On works of art? or yes. The shows? I'd We're love to know what people might have and, thought about uh, any of the shows. Mm-hmm. Well, this isn't a question exactly, but I wondered a little if a contemporary parallel to the Times Square show uh, might be graffiti artists who also are working outside the gallery system and not worrying about where to put their work up. Um, And that just occurred to me. So, Well, I think they've been in the gallery system. I think Jeffrey Deitch sort of, you know, made a particular... No, absolutely. But the weird thing about the graffiti world of graffiti and street art is it's the most conservative of all artistic movements, right? It has an incredibly limited number of things it wants to say. It tends to be virtually apolitical or not politically active in any, with any real agency. It's a very strange the notion that it's still represents... I think it's quite a lot since 1980 and, you know, an emphasis on tagging and territory. And, I mean, I think it's... Uh, I don't agree. I think that graffiti art is not conservative... Hmm. At all these days. Do you mean graffiti art or do you, uh, so you I mean, mean okay, street gra- murals? Well, are they the art. same thing? They're not. I the don't same think they're the thing. same thing. No. So, uh, are you sure? Uh, um, uh, but I think that street murals can still be graffiti esque and mm-hmm. 
you know, you see very organized compositions, if you want to, you know, describe them that way, that are being done by very interesting artists. I mm. see all over the city. Wow. Mm -hmm. uh, we in the, especially in the last, like, 15 years. Well, I think Jane will have to take Blake and, yes. and those who want to on a guided tour. Um, let's have one or two more comments, if we could. Uh, the gentleman here and then the lady there. <laughs> when you were speaking about um, the do-it-yourself um, form of art, it occurred to me that after the church art, then the revolt against that comes, and you've got, you know, a Picasso or Matisse or earlier doing this soul-searching individual art thing that ultimately becomes the do-it-yourself, I mean, it, it, it tra you know, transmutes into a do-it-yourself kind of art and punk art and as far away from any real, um, well, anyone can do it kind of art. Um, and that leads me to the question of if, if this is a final phase of that that we're living through now where everyone can become an artist and there is no professional standards as you suggested or whatever you want to call that, um, then is the future someone like Andy Warhol who moves into a factory art and uh, you know something that isn't this individual thing but becomes a group effort and I don't know what but that's whatever Andy Warhol was basically trying to say business art I think that is part of the future I and mean, that's been interesting there's been some good business art done I think that's been genuinely interesting more interesting than than you know the outpourings of all the Garrets in, in Windsor, Ontario. Um, so I think that that's, if it's not part of the future, it's part of the present it's in an interesting way. Present, yeah. in, and I would say in an interesting way. Um, I think it's... But we, yeah, it's I, been Christian and I have disagreed I, yeah, about this. I, I don't in, think it's interesting at all this minute. I think it's the least interesting thing happening. Um, um, have you'd have to, we'd have to have things. another argument about why Damien Hurst is important right this minute as opposed mm -hmm. to not. Been there, done that. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, we have. Um, and Coons. And Coons, um, who's done obviously interesting work, and so has Damien Hurst. But, mm -hmm. but again, you know, Andy, Andy won, or he's winning, and, and, or at least the, the last Andy. Exactly. Um, Although I think the, that the last the Andy well, is looking better well, and better. The last Andy, for me, is looking like one of the most courageous, interesting, strange Andys. Really? Yeah, the, no, I'm, I go to bat in big, big time for the Andy on the Love Andy? Boat. I think his the greatest work Andy, of art was the, when he appeared on the Love Boat. <laughs> the Imelda Marcos Andy, the Love Boat Andy, the... Uh, I, yeah, I'm going the, to bat uh, for him all the way. Mm. Um, some other night. Yes. Yes, I think another night on late Andy. Um, <laughs> can we... Yeah. What what what's that Hannah Arendt line about the uh, banality? The of lady evil? The, is the, going the, to this, speak. The evil, the evil of banality in this case, with uh, the world. So I just wanted to pose a question in terms of um, DIY and what's going on today with dematerialized art objects in terms of net art. And so in terms of canonization too, um, what is your take on Tumblr blogs or artists who are now forming these different groups or doing social network art or, you know, Rhizome's art base? And I, I'm just interested because it seems like now, you know, the Lucy Lepard book also served as an exhibition. So now websites serve as exhibitions. And what do you think about that? I think it's an interesting, hopeful phenomena that, you know, it's going to take some time for the sort of much more staid art world to really digest. Yeah. 
and figure out how to deal with and ultimately figure out how to sell. I think that's still a problem. I, I would question that um, the, the virtual is, in, in, is actually related to the dematerialized. It's only um, dematerialized in the sense that its um, material base has a, a physical uh, dissemblance to a traditional crafted object, but it's actually people using what's actually our, material, our new material base um, as, as the vehicle. For. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. Using what? Sorry? Yeah, oh, so they're uh, 3D printing. Ah, oh, right. so, and mm. MakerBot is, is one that's very kind of popular right now. And so a lot of artists that I've had for years doing net art or, or doing generative art um, are now finding a way to create objects so that they can actually function in the market. Exactly. And, yeah. well, that's what I mean. You know, I think it's going to... 3D printing is a big thing now. So you build these objects virtually with these 3D programs and you print them out as sculpture. Let's just remember for a minute, though, to get back onto the market, which we all want to do so badly, is that there's an assumption in this room and in this country, in fact, which took me rather by surprise when I came here 10 years ago, that the only funding model for art is, in fact, the market, that that's the only thing that exists. But there are lots of countries. Canada has a lot of good art that's funded through arm's length um, funding bodies. That's not an impossible model. As a society, we yeah, can Except decide. the NEA is virtually non-existent. Well, so, you know, right. it is... In, in this country, yes, but you go to Scandinavia or... Of course, or, all over Europe. So it's not... Mm. People... Yeah, that's true. That's an interesting alternative model. And that's a do-it-yourself kind of approach as well. I think, I think actually... We have one more question, and then we close. Um, I think, well... Uh, no, I think we might just um, okay. let it rest there. But thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. See you in the new year. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was very good.